A surge not seen in years, families struggling to get into the U.S. spurred on by desperation and hope. We have a responsibility to stand up against an administration that has just decided they don't want to have a secure border. The Department of Homeland Security is asking immigration agency employees to help relocate Afghans who assisted U.S. forces over the last 20 years. World leaders are stepping in to help Ukrainian refugees fleeing the horrors of the Russian invasion. Tens of thousands of refugees starting a new life in America, now trying to acclimate to a new land during a pandemic. Hey listeners, welcome back to Immigrantly, a weekly podcast that features deeply personal conversations around race, identity, multiculturalism, and the general messiness of being human. This is your host Sadia Khan returning with the Immigrantly team after a short hiatus. We've been hard at work piecing together what is going to be an amazing new chapter. So here's the thing. Season 14 is about accountability. To better understand the institutional landscape that is America and pay heed to both the personal and the political. We want this season to serve as an opportunity for such reflection and recommitment so we can put our minds, our votes and our time to transformative use. You'll hear from activists, scholars, civil servants, researchers and more. Each has their own unique immigrant identity and story, but beyond that, their passions for socio-political engagement has led them to positions of knowledge, power and change. As many of you know, midterm elections are a few months away. I know that's scary. When two in three Americans say the country is headed in the wrong direction, change is undoubtedly imminent. But what sort of change depends on us, you and me? Our today's guest is going to share about this road to November, his work in immigration policy and reconciliation, and steps towards direct action as well as inward reflection. Ali Nurani is the president and CEO of the National Immigration Forum. Prior, he was the director of the Massachusetts Immigrant and Advocacy Coalition as the author of two books, one of which, Crossing Borders, was recently published. Ali is recognized by many as a thought leader and activist in immigration policy. His experiences are far from just intersectional. They demonstrate important truths on how we can address and reconcile our personal identities with the contradictions we see across sectors in this country. Oh, and be sure to listen until the end because as promised, we will be bringing you perspectives of people on the streets across the US. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Thank you for coming on Immigrantly. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you so, so much for having me. And I also just got to say, 
thank you very much for everything you all do. Really, really admire all the work. So thank you. This season, which is season 14, we are going to focus on issues that matter to American residents. I don't say citizens because I want to be all inclusive here. And you've worked in immigration space for almost 14 years. That's a long time, Ali. I know. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) So we are going to focus primarily on immigration. But as I was doing research for your episode, I found out that your parents immigrated from Pakistan. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. I am from Pakistan, so I get excited when I hear about other people. So what brought them to the U.S.? Well, it's funny you ask because I'm actually at their place right now. So that's part of the reason why I've got kind of a setup that's all discombobulated uh, moving around. But um, so my parents came in 1971. They were both uh, trained as physical therapists. And my father's older brother was here in California. So they came in 71. They were able to get their training. My father ended up being able to open a practice in Salinas. My mom ran the business side. And I ended up really growing up in Salinas, California, which was a then a community of probably about 50,000 people, majority of whom were you know, either Mexican or white. So the way I put it is that the South Asian community that I grew up with was my parents and my sisters and, and myself. That's so interesting because I thought that in the 70s and 80s, there was a substantial South Asian community, but it seems that was not the case, at least not where you lived. Not certainly not in Salinas. I think just at that point in time, people were, you know, going to Silicon. This was kind of early days of Silicon Valley, right? And um, early days of kind of the Bay Area starting to uh, turn. Um, so not a sizable population by any means, particularly in Salinas, but you're starting to see growth in the San Jose area. So tell me, what was it like growing up with not as much diversity as you put it? As a child, what was it like for you? Well, it's actually a very diverse community because I grew up and my friends were white or brown. Uh, They just weren't South Asian. Hmm. So it was actually an incredibly diverse community in that very early on, whether or not I realized at the time, I began to understand of how to engage with a range of people from a range of backgrounds. You know, I I look around these days and, you know, a lot of kids these days grow up in communities that, uh, particularly in the South Asian community that are primarily South Asian. I was fortunate in some ways to you know, grow up in a community that was incredibly diverse in, in different ways. Talking about diversity, your organization, which is National Immigration Forum, basically does a lot of relationship building, primarily with people who identify as conservatives or moderates, right? Now, theoretically, that sounds amazing, you know, reaching across the table and finding some commonality. But Ali, to be honest, I am a bit skeptical when it comes to coalition building around immigration. And one of the reasons why I am skeptical is because I feel like most of the time we are trying to appeal to sensibilities of white folks. My question to you is, why do you think this model works of coalition building and do you think it's enough to repair entrenched eurocentric ideologies of how immigrants are treated or mistreated you know so how long are we talking four hours (laughs) (laughs) I, i mean that is the nut of the question right that's the core of the question here is okay how do you help people across the political spectrum across the racial spectrum 
see immigrants and immigration in a different way. Um, in my first book, There Goes the Neighborhood, Doris Meisner, who ran immigration naturalization services for the Clinton administration, she had a great way to put it. She said that, and I'll paraphrase here, Americans, they romanticize immigration of generations past. They're not a big fan right. of it today, right? Yeah. So for us, very much our kind of informal motto as an organization is to meet people where they are, but not leave them there. Because I think particularly in this time, the rigidity of the in-groups that so many of us live in really prevents us from having conversations or even learning about or even being exposed to ideologies, much less relationships that are outside of our very specific sphere. Mm. And to be able to start to chip away at those spheres, to be able to you know, chip away at those kind of those rigid walls that people, we all build around ourselves, it's going to take time. Mm. And the work that we do at the National Immigration Forum to better understand where conservative faith communities, people who believe in the rule of law, people who believe in kind of an open market, what are their fears and anxieties when it comes to immigration, and then moving them down a path so that they see immigrants and immigration differently, and that ultimately they're adding their voice to the movement. I mean, look, if we want to see legislative change in this country mm -hmm. that treats people with dignity, they have to be a part of that conversation. They have to be a part of that solution. So when you talk about their fears and concerns, what are, what are some of their fears and concerns? I wrote about this in the book that I have coming out called Crossing Borders, the Reconciliation of a Nation of Immigrants. And one of the things that I write about is that in 2018, we did a series of living room conversations across the country. And we sat down in a couple of dozen conservative communities and pulled together pastors, police chiefs, business owners. And what we learned is that there were three fears that people had consistently, culture, security, the economy. From a cultural perspective, the question was, are immigrants and refugees, are they integrating or are they isolating? From a security perspective, they're threats or protectors. And then from an economic perspective, are immigrants and refugees givers or takers? So from those conversations and through all the work we've done, we've really tried to shape not just messages, but spaces for people to see that immigrants are contributing to the American economy, that they are protecting America by serving the armed forces, by serving as police officers, but also they are becoming part of the fabric of the nation um, as long-term residents, as citizens, as people contributing in you know so many different ways. And we really try to have those conversations in a way that's respectful of people's fears, hmm. but doesn't allow people to, to just kind of rest on those fears. So as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking concerns that you've mentioned, at least that you have identified through your conversations. Are they universal across different ethnic racial groups of immigrants or are they specific to certain immigrant groups? And then does it mean that there is an undercurrent of racism and white supremacy when it comes to how people in the U.S. view immigration? I mean, there's certainly elements of race to this, right? I've always believed that immigration and the debate around immigration has always been wound up in really, really difficult questions of race and class. There's no doubt about that. Hmm. Particularly in this day and age, I'm not going to argue with the fact that there is a significant portion of the American public that are so racist that they are unreachable. But I can tell you with high degree of confidence that there are a lot of people who see themselves as 
concerned, and yes, who will be more concerned about a Syrian refugee than a Ukrainian refugee. But at the end of the day, if you reach them and actually have that conversation with them and that they're hearing from their pastor, police chief, or others saying, okay, this is why your fears are unfounded, that person can change their mind. And I mean, I would point to two examples. One is we have, about since 2017, we've partnered with an effort called Women of Welcome. Mm -hmm. And this is a group of, by and large, conservative and moderate white evangelical women. And over the years, they have built out a community of well over 130,000 women. They are the ones who are advocating for unaccompanied children in the conservative community um, at the U.S.-Mexico border. They're pushing back against Governor DeSantis and his attacks on unaccompanied mm. children in Florida. They're welcoming Syrian refugees. And what has happened with this community is that they have come to see these questions, not as questions of race or class, but as mm. questions of what does their faith lead them to do? You know, so I guess what I would say is that if we had gone to that community and said, you are approaching this through a lens of race or white supremacy, and you know we're going to reflect that anger back at you. And I'm not saying the anger is not unfounded, mm. uh, but our role is to kind of understand what those fears are and say, okay, what's your values? What, what are your what's your system of values? And how do we have a conversation based on those you know, within that system? Just to expand this conversation a little more, I totally agree. Going to a person and saying you're racist doesn't solve anything, right? At the same time, I think it's important that we do talk about structural and systemic racism in the United States, because again, that's something that people are very reticent to have these conversations around for many reasons. Have you seen that shift happening where you've been able to include structural racism in conversations around immigration? How have people responded to that? It's interesting because one of the things that I love about my job is that I can have conversations with different people in different spaces, and they're going to use very different language to talk about the same things, right? So we're going to talk about this as structural racism and the way that the immigration system is set up so people of color are treated horribly, right? Yeah, they are dehumanized. And dehumanized, right. Mm. Full stop. Within a conservative faith community, what is that conversation is going to talk about treating, making sure that the Afghan refugee is treated with dignity, having significant, serious questions about the way that Haitians were treated months later by the U.S. government. Haitian migrants struggling to enter the southern border of the United States, and some of them being repelled with force. These people walked. 7,000 miles, hitched rides, you know, got on trains, uh, but for the most part, did it on foot. The administration is still flying migrants back there. Is this beyond an immigration issue? Is this a full-blown human rights crisis? And if it is, why aren't we treating it like one? It's a treacherous experience for many of them. They've gone through a lot. And then, asking the question, okay, what do we need to do as a country to make sure that Ukrainians are protected? So for that community, they are not going to see this as a question of structural racism as much as it is a structural failure hmm. to treat people equally. You know, and maybe five years, two years, 10 years down the line, maybe two weeks down the line, people will say, you know what, this system is racist. What I love about this job and the work that we do is that we really try to understand kind of where people are in these conversations. Um, and then again, just try to, to 
to provide ways for them to engage in a more and more constructive way. Talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, do you think it has unfolded or unraveled the underlying inequities and discrimination that exists across different ethnic and racial communities when it comes to immigration? Because we've seen Western countries' response, right? What I'm saying is, it goes on to show us that Europe has the moral, economic, cultural capacity to accommodate immigrants, right? We, we are seeing movement around BDS. Governments are sanctioning Russia. But all those things are in contrast to how Syrian refugees were treated, how Haitian migrants are treated in the U.S. Do you think the conversation is becoming easier because of this, because you have an example? So I think it's a little bit early to tell whether or not the conversation around refugees is easier because of the way that Western Europe has responded to Ukrainians. But the way I've been thinking about this is that, you know, our modern day refugee resettlement system was really established in response to World War II. Um, And, you know, the last major refugee crisis in Europe. So does this crisis help us kind of reset and recenter the importance of refugee systems, you know, in Europe, in the U.S. globally? That's my mm-hmm. hope. And I think that, you know, in that way, we have to do a lot of work. And like you're saying, not critiquing the response, but expanding the response. Right. Right. And I think there's a real opportunity. And look, I mean, the Tucker Carlson's and the Donald Trump's and company, you know, <laughs> they are, they're a little bit, you know, they're a little bit, uh, um, confused right now, right? Because they're used to being very angry about, you know, refugees of color. Uh, this isn't that. And I just think we, we have to, we have to do everything we can to support Ukrainians. We have to do everything we can to support even a place like Hungary, where Viktor Orban weaponized the migration and get these countries, much less our own, to see this in a different light moving forward. So let's talk about your book. It's coming out end of March, right? So by the time this podcast episode airs, it would be on bookstore shelves. And I highly recommend it. I encourage our listeners to go buy it. I'm reading it. I'm a slow reader, but it's a great read. Now, the title was very intriguing to me. It's Crossing Borders, the Reconciliation of a Nation of Immigrants. Ali, what are we reconciling? I think what we're reconciling is competing visions of how to treat people with dignity. And that doesn't start nationally. It starts in very, very small local places that, you know, in some ways are really unexpected. What are some of the questions you ask in the book? So from a systemic perspective, I asked questions of, you know, how did we end up in a position where the public found it acceptable for not just Donald Trump to run for president, but to actually become president. You know, what was the rise of the alt-right leading to nationalism, leading to authoritarianism? I ask how and why migrants from Central America are leaving Honduras to try to seek asylum in the U.S. Is it a question of safety, corruption, poverty, climate change? Is it just one of those questions or is all of those issues? As I've gone back through it, as I'm kind of starting to get ready to, to talk about the book, I realize I, I crammed a lot into it. 
But I, I hope I painted a picture of people are crossing borders for a variety of reasons. And unless we treat individuals with dignity, we as a country lose our own dignity. What really stood out to me about your book is that you bring in dimensions of immigration conversation or discourse that we don't see in the mainstream media, right? So you talk about U.S. policies. You also link Syrian crisis to climate change, which was extremely interesting and surprising to me, and I'm sure it will be to a lot of other people. And I love your optimism. I can see how you converse around immigration. But as an immigrant who's lived in the U.S. for almost two decades, what I find difficult or what I struggle mostly with is when we interact with people with different values, whether cultural, religious, ethnic, I am all for reaching out across the table and having those conversations. But what if sometimes doing that negates part of my identity, right? Because a lot of times these conversations hinges on denying my existence as a Muslim, Pakistani, American woman of color. How do we get past that? How do I get past that? I'll give you a glib answer and then I'll give you a serious answer, right? Uh, my glib answer is that this strategy leads to some really awkward conversations. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, just some really awkward conversations. And... I have ended up with people that I would call close friends that I never thought I would because of their politics, because of their histories. But our connection is that I have struggled to get to know them and why they believe what they believe. And they have struggled to get to know me and the journey of my family, the community that I work with. I mean, at the end of the day, there is this sense that when we go into this sort of a process that we're all going to lose something. And I think that mm -hmm. underneath it, for the people that we're trying to persuade to think differently, they also think they're going to lose something. So what did you end up losing? My point is that I haven't lost anything. And I'm not asking somebody that we're trying to persuade to think differently on immigration to change their identity. I'm asking them to think about this issue differently but within their own values framework, within their, their, the way they see the world. Because I just think, particularly in this day and age, if we go into these conversations asking somebody who sees themselves as evangelical, not to be evangelical, be a Republican, switch to being Democrat, right? right? right. It's not going to happen. Yeah, that's not going to happen, yeah. But it is perfectly reasonable for somebody to be a less fearful Republican, less fearful evangelical of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And just like I think I can become a less fearful person of evangelicals or Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. You bring up a very important point that we are equally fearful of them. Yeah. It goes both ways. It's not just they are fearful of us. I identify as a progressive on many issues. And what I've noticed about us progressives is that we are quick to denounce a lot of things, right? Yep. Any legislative changes, political gamut. We post about refugee crisis. We talk about pay gap. When it comes to making sacrifices, um, not so much, right? It's like not in my backyard. What should we do to basically walk the talk and how do we hold ourselves accountable to our progressive claims? Oh, wow. Now you're trying to get me in trouble. 
(laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, This is not a question I was expecting. I, you know, it's funny. When we first started this strategy in 2010, 2011, we had organization, a lot of our progressive colleagues, a lot of my progressive friends Hmm. would kind of look at us and say, you're crazy. Why are you? In fact, I remember a very specific meeting that people thought that our strategy would give conservatives too much power in the immigration debate. Hmm. And I was like, dude, they already have all the power. Right. Right. You know, so what we have to do is change that equation. So some of that power is brought to bear on the way that we would like to see this issue advance. So I guess for progressives, and I don't think this only counts on immigration, but I think it's across a number of issues, is that there are multiple ways, there are multiple correct answers. Hmm. There is a correct answer to an issue from a progressive perspective, from a moderate perspective, or even from a conservative perspective. And the question I think for progressives is that, can we be politically sophisticated enough to understand that there are multiple correct answers so that we get to the solution that we're seeking. Uh, Because I think too often progressives, and I would count myself as progressive, we get angry at the other right answer. And we think that our right answer is more correct and therefore your correct answer is incorrect. It's just, it's, and you end up in this goofy circular firing spot that ultimately stands in the way of solutions. I'm just trying to think and process what you said. So I'll give you a a really, just the immigration example, right? Hmm. In order to pass legislation, you need 279 votes. 280 in the House, (laughs) 60 in the Senate, signature of the president. And we can have a discussion about filibuster reform, et cetera, et cetera, right? Short of filibuster reform, the only way you get to that math these days is to have multiple right answers gets to a common solution. And that, that means that solution is not going to be everything that progressives want. It's not going to be everything that conservatives want. But there's a, a, a shared vision for where we want to go as a country. And that's what I think is really missing. Ali, you bring up a very important point about how to make legislative compromise, right? Yeah. But when I see debate around immigration, I feel like there is a lot of power vested in executive branch. Do you think there's been a shift to more power in executive branch when it comes to immigration? So there's certainly a level of power within the executive branch that you know may or may not be the same that you see on other issues. I, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but there is certainly a, a, a large amount of power. But what we're seeing is that that power is either increased by the courts or decreased by the courts, right? So Trump, he was able to take that power and increase it through the courts because Frankly, they had a legal strategy and the courts on their side. Biden, I think, is struggling to do the same because as they are either trying to unwind what the Biden administration, or I'm sorry, what the Trump administration has done or trying to do new things, the courts are standing in in their way. Um, And they work on very different timelines, obviously, right? The the court process will always take longer. So yes, um, the executive branch does have, you know, more power than I think we expect on immigration, but it is checked uh, in good ways and in bad ways by the courts, which I think then kind of brings back the, back the importance of, you know, really as a movement, you know, recentering our efforts on, you know, moving Congress to take action, because hmm. though you know, if Congress changes the law, that changes the game. Um, executive versus judicial, 
Right. You know, those are that's kind of checkers. How do you see Biden administration's work within the immigration space so far? Do you think they are delivering on their promises? Whenever I get this question, I think there's two points to kind of level set expectations. One is that there were well over a thousand changes that the, the Trump administration made. So there's a long list of things that need to be unwound. And two, it's only been one year of the Biden administration. So the question we've been asking is, is the Biden administration on a trajectory to rebuild the immigration system in a much more humane way, given not just the long list, but the courts and everything else that I talked about? I think they have the right policy people doing the right things internally and trying to move the system. I think politically, the Biden administration has managed this issue from a very defensive posture. There is a greater consensus on immigration than the White House believes there is. Um, I think that, you know, for example, the Afghan evacuation, you know, we were worried about this, you know, in March or April when he first announced the withdrawal. And, you know, we we're worried from two perspectives. One is the real life impact of stranding tens of thousands of our allies there. But second, it was a great organizing opportunity. You know, the Biden administration could have rallied the entire country veterans and others around getting, you know, getting people to safety. That ended up happening in spite of the Biden administration's kind of political miscalculation. Since you brought up Afghan refugees now, support for Afghan refugees has been unprecedented in the U.S. Why do you think that is the case? Well, I think it's the role of the veterans, the veteran community. I think that there were so many Americans who had family members or new people who served in Afghanistan that this was a particularly personal experience for people. Uh, and watching the evacuation fall apart in such a dramatic way, it led to so many people who they themselves are military veterans, again, or family or friends, to, to ask the question of, okay, how do I get these people out? We've watched the Afghan government collapse in real time. Many Afghans are now coming to the U.S. as refugees. About 76,000 Afghans have been brought to the U.S. since last summer. Many organizations are helping resettle this influx of Afghan refugees. About 10,000 remain on military bases waiting for permanent homes. Another 2,500 are on U.S. bases abroad. And, you know, I've had the honor of talking to a number of folks who served in Afghanistan and then helped in the, the evacuation. And I asked them, I said, well, did you realize the immigration system was as messed up as it is? And they said, no, like they had no idea. And now they are some of, you know, I think our strongest allies on, you know, immigration and I think refugee issues moving forward. Um, and I think the, the you know, one thing I, I worry about is that there's not a, a kind of a clear advocacy strategy to engage these communities, because again, they're kind of seen as the other, right? Progressives are not veterans, right? We don't, we don't, we're, we're very uncomfortable in that space. I think as progressives, oftentimes we're, we're so wrapped up in our own world that we actually, we don't realize that we have more friends and allies on these issues than we expect. You know, but with a fun refugee crisis, I like the outcome. I like the unprecedented support. But I don't like the why. 
the way I see it, and I have this theory, and and you've talked about it, it's primarily because of U.S. fondness of military, right? So Afghan refugees are seen as allies of the military. The support is not based on humanitarian motivations, right? And that, to me, goes back to this idea of how we measure a refugee, an immigrant's worth, especially if they are not white. How do we change that narrative? How do we stop measuring their worth, whether it's allyship, cultural integration, economic benefits? How do we move past that? I think you're absolutely right, because you know I think that too often we, we see immigrants and refugees, like you said, as allies or as economic cogs in the wheel, yeah. right? I think it comes back to that informal motto for us is that we have to meet people where they are, but just not leave them there. So if somebody is going to work 24 hours a day for three weeks to try to get their interpreter out of Afghanistan and then rally their community to help that family uh, settle and thrive in the U.S., number one, I think it's imperative that we help that individual do that. But number two, we have a conversation with them of, okay, what does what do you think this means in a broader sense about our immigration system? What does this mean about the role of the United States immigration system? So we expand the conversation. Then. We expand the conversation. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Talking about midterms, with the midterms coming up later this fall, what do you expect? What are your what is your hope for the midterms? I cut out of the the kind of electoral prognostication business in 2016 um, <laughs> for obvious reasons. But what I hope here is that candidates may point to you know the resettlement of Afghan families, um, the way that you know we need to repair and rebuild our asylum system. We need to be protecting Ukrainian refugees. That you know we can we can actually have a secure border that treats people humanely. Um, so I guess my hope for the midterms is that there is some level of rhetoric and um, and much less candidates who who are Republicans who are saying you know we have to find more rational solutions on immigration. Um, you know, so last, you know, earlier earlier this month, we were part of a new alliance called the Alliance for a New Immigration Consensus, where over 30 organizations came together and said, we need Congress to move forward with protections for dreamers, farm workers, TPS recipients, and, and move forward with smart border security. But this alliance includes Americans for Prosperity, you know, the National Association of Evangelicals, the Business Roundtable, the Chamber of Commerce, us. Now I'm starting, I can see your face. You're, 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 you're getting <laughs> like, nervous. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but if those organizations are part of this conversation, it just, it, it, it helps some of these candidates hopefully to be in a better place. Ali, I could talk to you for another two hours, but the interview is coming to an end. And you know what I'm excited about? I always ask my guests this question to define America in a word or a sentence. And I really, really want to hear what you're going to say. I would define America in one word, uh, and that word being potential. I like that. Yeah. And the backstory on that is that um, probably in you know 2000, 
12 or 13, we were kind of going through an internal process of trying to figure out kind of new language for ourselves. And, you know, I think the language we were starting to zero in on was, um, you know, we, we need an immigration system that allows all of us to uh, succeed was the initial draft, I think. And I remember having lunch with a friend of mine who was very senior within the Southern Baptist Convention. And I said, hey, you know, let me run this by you. And he said, okay. And he says, you know, what's a better word is that we need an immigration system so that helps us all, helps all, all Americans live to their fullest potential. I found it very powerful because it takes that question of kind of all of us being, you know, an economic cog in the wheel, right? Each one of us has a, a potential that we should be, that we should have the support to live up to, um, regardless of where we were born, our immigration status, our race, gender, etc. Um, and it's interesting because when I use that language of human potential um, among progressive audiences, they're kind of they're a little bit uncomfortable with it, right? Um, it's not language that we use. But when I use that language in conservative audiences, like, yep, I get that. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about the word American itself. The word American, it has a different connotation, right? So right. should we switch it to American residents or all residents living in the United States so that we are all inclusive? I, I think, yes, I guess it's... If I'm having a conversation with somebody that I'm trying to kind of get them to think about this differently, I want them, number one, to see that all people can live to, should be able to live to their potential, regardless of status, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's where we want to get them. I think starting that conversation and kind of shifting that definition of who is an American, like right out of the gates, it puts people on their, on their haunches, right? On their heels. Um, so I just, I, I, I think, and I hope that, you know, you can get people to that place without, and I'm not saying it's not, it's incorrect, right? I'm not saying it's the wrong thing. I'm just saying like, again, there are multiple ways to get to that answer. Right, right. Ali, this was so good. So when your book comes out, is there a particular bookstore that you want people to go to, or should they just buy it from Amazon? So if you go to uh, my website, alinorani.org, and you go to the, the page that has the book, I've got a range of kind of bookstores that people can, can buy from. Um, and I think bookstore.org has a very good kind of catalog of independent stores. But then, you know, uh, the Walmart people, the Amazon people, the Barnes and Noble people, I was like, hey, put our link up there. Um, so uh, I, I just, I really, really appreciate this opportunity to talk. I, I so admire the work that you do um, and the stories that you're bringing to, to the, the discussion. And I just, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ali. And we will link up all those things in our show notes so people can just even go and click on it and buy your book. Fantastic. And oh, I look forward you. to the first episode of the Anti-Intersectionality Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and now a word from the folks on the streets. There is that white baseline, that white norm. So if white equals good and bad is other. So immigrants, people of color, anybody who does things differently than the white norm is being othered. Because when we think of things in black and white terms or with duality and not 
with multiplicity, it's really harmful. I won't lie, season 14 is going to be difficult. Acknowledging issues that affect our families, other people and the environment is no easy task. But we hope these conversations provide hope and real solutions. Solutions that will come from you and I. By no means do we have the magic bullet, but maybe you know of an awesome organization to highlight or want to pass around a petition. Whatever it is, find us on Instagram at ImmigrantlyPod and Twitter at Immigrantly underscore pod. We love it when you reach out to us. Connection and community are at the core of this show. And if you want to support us further, subscribe to our Patreon. This episode was written by Yudi Lu with input from the episode was produced by Kylie C. Roberts and me, Sadia Khan. Our editor for this episode is Bronte Cook. And a special shout out to our development producer, Eliza Kazmi. Until next time, take care.